We've titled our message, Under New Ownership. Philippians 1, beginning at verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. And what did we read on the back of the bulletin today from Corinthians? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 is really the hub of this theme, this message. Do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? How would you answer that? Do you know that? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. It's wonderful to call him Jesus. We have just come through a Christmas season recently, and the angelic announcement rings in our ears, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Nobody wants to go to hell. But he is also known as Lord. And we need to take that step in our Christian development. Let me try to put it in a frame for you. I read this in the Reader's Digest. A minister was sitting in a coffee shop which happened to be across the street from his church. He was reading the morning paper when a man noticed his clerical garb and asked him what church he belonged to, and he pointed out the window and said, that one right over there. Well, the man said, that's interesting, that's the church I go to myself. Well, at this the pastor perked up and said, well, that's strange. I've been preaching there for five years, and I don't believe I've ever seen you. Well, the man said, come on, preacher, I didn't say I was a fanatic. Does that help you? Philippians 1.20, Christ shall be magnified in my body. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Verse 27, let your conduct be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, verse 29, we're not only called to believe, but we're called to suffer for his sake. That has to do with ownership, lordship. In this first chapter of Philippians, Christ is mentioned by the apostle 17 times. Five times you will find reference to the gospel. Paul had tremendous motivations in his life, Christ and the gospel. 
If you were to write your epistle, what would we read as your motivation for life? Paul's is obvious. Seventeen references to Christ. Five references to the gospel. His concern was not Paul. He was a single-minded man, not a double-minded man, as James referred to in his little epistle to the church. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He wants the best of both worlds and may not get the best of either. Double-minded. But the single-minded Paul knew that Jesus was not only his Savior, but his Lord. That Christ owned him. So he put Christ first. Verse 13, he talks about my bonds in Christ. Verse 20, Christ shall be magnified by life or by death. He was not the prisoner of Rome He was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Though he was shackled by Rome and guarded by Roman soldiers, he was the prisoner of Christ. My bonds in Christ. He put others next after Christ. In verse 3 of that first chapter of Philippians, he rejoiced at the remembrance of the saints at Philippi. Paul's heaven on earth was helping others. And then thirdly, he put himself. His body was not his own. His future was not his own. His reputation was not his own. Whatever comes, he said, I want Christ to be glorified. And the climax of verse 30 is beautiful from the living Bible. We are in this fight together. We all must come to that place of recognizing he owns us. We are but a steward of anything in life. He is the owner. We are the steward. There is an old saying I picked up years ago, and I don't know who to attribute it to. It just went like this. You can't shoot half a horse. I got to thinking about that, and I've really learned from that. You can't. If you shoot part, you've shot it all. It's done for. Everyone connected with the church is riding the same horse. You must do your part to keep the animal moving. That is what lordship or ownership is all about. If the team loses, nobody wins. Jesus must be Lord. If any of us fail in our witness, in our testimony, if anyone thinks we're hypocritical, we've all lost. The whole team is weakened by the lack of involvement of one. You see the importance of ownership and lordship? Oh, that we might come to that place the apostle was in in his relationship in that regard. Now, I want to talk to you about two basic things this morning. The new owner demands faithfulness, and the new owner demands involvement. You are bought with a price, Paul wrote. He bought us with his blood. He redeemed us. Now, after that marvelous experience of redemption, old things passing away, all things becoming new, he asks certain things of us. 
Perhaps it is seen the best in Matthew 25 where he talked about a master and three servants. The master was going on a journey, so he called his servants and he gave them talents. To one he gave five, to another two, to another one. He said, I will return. I'll be gone for a time. You use these as you see fit. Well, he did return after a time, and he called his servants together, and what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25 is most interesting. For the one with five gave ten, and the one with two gave four, and the one with one gave one, for he had buried his talent in the ground, and he, when the master returned, undug it and brought it just as it had been given him expecting that this would be significant, that he had not lost anything that the master had given him. But the master was angry. And Jesus goes on in that story to say to the two who doubled their talents, who used them to multiply, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But to the one who only brought what had been given him, The Lord said, Thou wicked and slothful servant, take the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. And that parable goes on to remind us that one goes to outer darkness, the other into the marvelous blessings of the Lord. That whole chapter is filled with some startling theology such as the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, five went in, five stayed out. Servants who are to use their gifts faithfully, one does not, and he's cast out, and what was his is given to another. What does that teach us about the future? It teaches me that only Christ who changes us, who comes in to abide in our hearts, can demand of us, don't lose your opportunity, or it could have eternal consequences. King Saul did not obey. He lost his place of leadership and eventually his life. He took things into his own hands, and it became one of the tragic pages and stories in the Old Testament record. Obey Christ or lose your opportunity. That's what Jesus is saying. Under faithfulness. He's also saying, obey Christ or lose your talent. Talents are to be used. He'll take away and give to another. He's also saying, obey Christ or lose your life. 1 John 5.16 speaks of a sin unto death. Paul reminds us in Corinthians it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Unfaithfulness can bring death. There is a dearth of faithfulness in the kingdom of God. We'd like others to do the work. We'd like others to do the giving. We'd like others to do the teaching. We'd like others to do the singing. We'd like others to do the visiting. But Jesus Christ calls us to faithfulness. And if we don't use the opportunity, we lose the opportunity and perhaps our life. 
The owner demands faithfulness. Then he demands involvement. With our Bible school students this week, I was going over Romans 12, which lists the seven categories of gifts to the church. And I said to these students, every believer has at least one of these gifts. Some have more than one, but every one has at least one of them, and we need to find our proper gift so we function well. What are they? Well, the first is prophecy. That's the person who has inward weeping over the sins of others. It's a David Wilkerson. A prophet to the believer weeping over the sins of the church. There is the serving gift or ministry gift, as it's called in the King James Version. This gift demonstrates love by meeting practical needs. It's uh, Martha serving, teaching, searching out and clarifying truth, the teaching gift. Thank God for teachers. There is the exhorter, the one that stimulates faith in others by practical application of truth. Sometimes teachers are boring. They have dug out the truth, and they've clarified the truth, but they don't apply the truth. But the exhorter applies it. He uses practical application to make it live. The people will not forget it. The giving gift is the one who entrusts money to others for the Lord's work. And what a marvelous gift that is. And sometimes that's the gift people fight the most. But it's a beautiful gift, and we thank God for people who have it, the entrusting of money to others for the Lord's work. There is the gift of administration or ruling, not afraid of responsibility. The person who has great fulfillment in seeing everything work together and become a blessing to the kingdom of God. Then there is the gift of mercy, to identify with or comfort those in distress to remove the hurts and bring healing to other people. Now, somewhere in that list, you'll find yourself, if you are willing to search. You may find yourself in more than one of those gifts. You see, the New Testament structure is that we all are involved, and into us at conversion there come certain abilities, certain gifts, that God wants us to use to make the body function properly, to make the kingdom advance as rapidly as possible, and to bring this world to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are you involved? That brings us to the question that so many ask, is what I do important? Is my task even necessary? Well, if it wasn't important and necessary, it wouldn't be there. Those who stand at the door and greet people, park cars, whatever. If you ran the company you work for, would you be glad to hire a person like yourself? Would you feel you were getting your money's worth? Well, apply that to the church. A famous doctor once said, when I treat a patient, I try to imagine what kind of doctor that patient would like me to be. Then I try to be that kind of doctor. Involvement. That kind of attitude would work anywhere. Paul said, I have become all things to all men. 
Matthew 22, 37 and 38 reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. This is the Lord's church. We say yes, but it's also our church, isn't it? His tasks become our tasks. His desires, our desires. Our part is vital to the success of the whole. Our involvement is important because if I do not involve myself with the gifts God has given me, there will possibly be no one else that will fill that place. God's counting on me. The leadership is counting on me. This is the Lord's church, and I'm part of it, and His tasks now are my tasks. I picked up just a little clip last night of the news, and I noticed the Los Angeles Raiders lost to the Jets yesterday. And the cameras wheeled into the dressing room where the Raiders were. I was intrigued by what I saw. One man was obviously weeping, though he was a strapping athlete. One had his shirt pulled up over his head so you couldn't even see his face. Another was fumbling with a bag, pretending like he was putting things in it. Another had his head down between his legs. It was like a funeral. 17 to 14, so close, and yet so far the best record in the National Football League went down the tubes yesterday in defeat. What impressed me was the attitude of the men at losing. I couldn't help but think about my message and about this church and God's kingdom. If nobody comes to the altar today and gives their life to Christ, and our altars are not tear-stained week by week, does it matter? Would we be crying like those athletes were crying because their team lost? What is our attitude if the seats are empty on Wednesday night and there's such a lack of attendance at other functions than Sunday morning? How do we feel? Does that affect us at all? Does that bother us at all? that there's such a poor witness for Christ in the world? How is it that football players can weep because they lost? And the church of Jesus Christ moves out quickly and rapidly and laughing and joking and going to their dinners and their gatherings without a feeling of twinge because... The Lord evidently didn't do everything that they thought he should do that day. I wonder if instead we shouldn't run off into a side room and bury our head in a chair and say, Jesus, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Why don't we see the results? Why is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Why are my loved ones still unsaved and my husband a sinner and my children running after the things of the world? Why, Lord? Oh, may God help us to come to that place of involvement where we will weep as a football player weeps. But he doesn't win. Proper involvement 
I believe, brings that about. If no souls, no growth, objectives unreached, our new owner demands results, and every one of us is responsible. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the eminent Supreme Court Justice, was on a train reading his paper when the conductor walked by, punching the tickets. The justice searched his coat pockets for his ticket, and he searched his vest pocket. Each time he came up empty, no ticket. Finally, the conductor who recognized him said, Mr. Justice Holmes, don't worry. I'm sure the great Pennsylvania Railroad won't mind if you send your ticket to us when you find it. With this, the distinguished jurist looked up at the conductor and said, My dear young man, the problem is not, where is my ticket? The problem is, where am I going? Jesus said the fields are white under harvest. God has put us here to reap that harvest. The ownership demands involvement and results. Thank God for the ticket, the salvation experience, the born-again experience, the new birth. But where are we going? That's the big question. What are we doing with it? How are we using the gift? Are we building with the gift? Are we moving with the body of Christ with the gift? Are we growing together with the gift? The fields are white. You know where you're going? Does God have some of your quality time? And I'd like to look at your progress, if you will, for a moment, after looking at your tasks being important. Paul said, I count not myself to have apprehended. He was always pressing forward and onward. I have found that a good Christian will always be ready to correct, change, remedy that which is not right or which is not progressing. I have said many times the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. We can be better. How is our progress? What is our evaluation? A rather plain-looking young lady was confessing her sins to the priest. She said, I'm guilty of the grievous sin of vanity. Only this morning, she said, through the little curtain, I looked into my mirror and admired my beauty. The priest said, is that all, my daughter? She said, yes, Father, that's all. He said, then go in peace. To be mistaken is not to sin. <laughs> What's the key to our progress? Humility. We look at ourselves sometimes with our own eyes and we say, oh boy, am I something? Have I ever got it together? But Jesus said, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the owner's words. How is your progress? 
The best we have, is that too much for him who gave his all? The best we are, is it too good to use at the master's call? How's your progress? Are you still a thumb sucker, religiously speaking? Are you still after your baba? You still running around with a soother in your mouth? Oh, he didn't talk to me. Nobody loves me, and I'm so wonderful. Where's your progress in the ownership of Jesus Christ? Find your place. It's important. Progress in it. Using that to the glory of his name. Taking up the cross involved to follow him. And then thirdly, how am I using my time? Ephesians 5.16 says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Did you know that time is your greatest friend or your greatest enemy, depending on how you use it? I came across this statement years ago, too, and I've never forgotten it. The lazier a man is, the more he expects to do tomorrow. How are you using your time? We all have the same amount. There's 168 hours in this coming week. I wonder if it wouldn't be well to consider a tithe of that to the Lord, 17 hours of it to give to the Lord, solely the Lord's. Is your religion a convenience or does the new owner demand more? I think we're living in an era when convenience is the key to life. Convenience stores, convenience restaurants, convenience this, convenience that. It's even in the church now. A southern newspaper had this advertising in it on Saturday. Drive-in church service every Sunday, 8.30 to 9.15 a.m. The Lord's Supper served each Sunday. Coffee and donuts served free. Dress as you like. Welcome a 45-minute worship service in the convenience of your car. Now, I'm not against drive-in churches. I think it's marvelous. If you need it, you're crippled. You're nine months pregnant. But my dear friends, religion was never meant to be a convenience. And you know what people do? Forty-five minutes, Lord, I have given you. You lucky fellow, now... Because we're in our car, we've worshipped in what we had on. We're on our way to the beach, up to the mountain, wherever. And thank you, God, till next Sunday at 8.30. I'll be back for my 45-minute appointment. 168 hours in every week. And if you don't use some of those, for Christ's sake, you will be weak. you give a tithe of your time to the Lord? Looking back over the past week, how much of your week have you really given to the Lord? He's the owner. He gave us all of the time we have. Are we using it aright? Are we servants multiplying the talents?
using our bodies as his temple. Think about it, please. What I have read from that newspaper is not an isolated thing. It is all around us. Our text says we are to glorify God in our bodies. We are not our own. That means our time is not our own. How much is the new owner getting? I have made some determinations in my life. That's why it's not difficult for me to put in the time. Because I want him to have the best there is of me. I want him to have whatever quality there may be. I want to invest my talents and my abilities. It is not a pain for me to give my time to his kingdom and to his person. I love him. He's my owner. He's my master. And I am his slave, his servant. I just thank him for the health that he has given me, that I may give him the time. I thank him for the gifts he has given me, that I may reinvest in his kingdom. It is not a pain. It is not a drag. It is a glorious privilege to give it back. Is he the owner? Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you were to write your epitaph, what would you say? A man went out to his woodsy property to clear the brush, took his axe with him, and his dog went along. He got to working real hard and got very warm, decided to take his coat off. He laid it down in a place and said to his dog, Now you stay there with my coat. He continued his work. He was lighting piles of brush, and soon a wind came up and was blowing branches and sparks until a fire engulfed the whole area where he was working, and he had to run to get out. As he made it to safety, he thought about his dog, looked around for him, couldn't find him, but he assumed that the dog would make his way through somehow to safety. When the fire was all over and the smoke had died down, He did not find his dog. He went back to where he laid his coat, and there was the charred remains of his faithful dog. Underneath his charred body, a piece of the coat. With loving hands, he picked up that little dog and carried it to his yard and dug a suitable grave and buried him and put a marker over the grave. Why? Because the dog was expensive? No, he wasn't expensive. Why? Because the dog had certain talents? No, just an ordinary dog, but he was faithful. And the owner had told him to stay with my coat. And he stayed with the coat, even to death. Does Jesus have that kind of place in your life as the owner? Does Jesus sit on the throne and you've put ego and self out and you've let him come in and occupy the place of ownership? That's where Christianity really gets exciting. That's where the church really comes alive. That's where the kingdom 
really begins to advance when he becomes Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together, please. Our God in heaven, we thank you for these moments together, sacred moments, wonderful moments of inspiration with music and worship and the word. Thank you for this great company of people that have joined in, as well as those by television and radio in other places. I pray now, God, your blessing on every one of them. We pray that you will forgive us for our lack of involvement, faithfulness, and help us to come into maturity today, Lord, to make some eternal decisions today about our lives, not to be caught in the trap of the world's philosophies. Move across this congregation, Lord, so that there will be some eternal decisions made in these next few seconds, as well as out there in other parts where this message is being carried. While, are we're, while we are bowed in prayer and nobody is looking around, may I ask...